Let's, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, Father God, we come to you recognizing, Lord, that we are made in your likeness, recognizing that we sin, and that that sin is treason against you, our Creator. And Lord, we are so prone to understating our sin. And we are so prone to ignoring the penalty of our sin in a a spiritual procrastination of sorts. Father, I pray that this morning that you would give us understanding into the deep wrongness of our sin, understanding into your unapproachable, glorious holiness, and seeing the two together, Lord, help us to understand what we deserve and what you give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things and ask these things. Amen. There was once an overconfident lion tamer. He was eventually consumed by his pride. Thank you. I... uh, That actually has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I was just told at some point that when you have like a really sensitive topic, lead in with a joke. And so that that was it. That was all that was that was all for that. Uh, um, So you're welcome. Today's a tough topic. Um, It's it's a personal topic. We've been we've set to start. trying to gear ourselves to be eternally minded too often. We, as believers, live for the here and now as though this is the point, and we forget that there's eternity. And so we've set out to be eternally minded. Uh, We've talked about storing up treasures in heaven. We've talked about investing in what lasts. We've talked about viewing our life in the timeline that it occurs, that we have a very brief time on earth, and then we have all eternity after that. And, and today, we need to address the elephant in the room. Next week, Austin will talk about heaven. And so come back. It's going to get better. Um, if you're visiting, this isn't what we do all the time. Um, Paul, when he was giving his farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, my hands are innocent of your blood because I have not... I, I, I have not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And he said, I am spiritually innocent of your guilt because I've told you everything I can about who God is, about his wrath, about his holiness, and about the deliverance we have in Christ and Christ alone. And so I'm innocent of your blood because I've declared all of that to you. And for me as your pastor to be innocent in that manner, we have to talk about hell. We can't 
get around it. Last week we looked at Jesus' teaching on the rich man and Lazarus, and we saw that there are two eternal destinies. This week we are covering hell. Next week um, will be heaven. And so I bet you're, you're really glad that you chose this over the, the endless onslaught of pregame that's probably already started. Um, toward the end of his life, the great pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul was asked which doctrine he struggled with the most. And he just simply replied, hell. And he's not alone. For reasons of our own compassion and love that we feel for people, for reasons of imposing our view and understanding of love on God and saying that my version of love must be his version of love, we struggle with the idea of eternal punishment in the lake of fire. John Blanchard, in his book, Whatever Happened to Hell, writes that hell seems to have fallen on hard times. A poll taken in the U.S. in 1978 revealed that over 70% of those interviewed said they believed in hell. Eleven years later, a Newsweek survey, again taken in the U.S., produced a figure of just 58%. And a poll conducted in Australia in 1988 indicated that only 39% believed in hell. While in 1989, a Gallup poll taken in Britain for the Sunday Telegraph revealed that no more than 24% Uh, believed in hell. Uh, Richard uh, Cavendish, author of Visions of Heaven and Hell, commented that in our society we have, uh, there's been a kind of double development. We have created hells on earth in a bigger scale and perhaps more horrible kind than previous century has done, yet there has been a very general retreat from the idea of hell. It's something we try to either pretend doesn't exist or, um, or we just internally discredit altogether. And I think there's a few reasons why the belief in a literal eternal hell has, has passed away. One is theologies and theologians have not always done us uh, good work. There's been a lot of uh, pop culture theology. A few years ago, uh, a guy named Rob Bell published a book uh, called Love Wins, and, him, and he, he claims he believes in hell. He goes, I even wrote a whole chapter on hell. But in, in his chapter, he, he really dis, discredits uh, a lot of what biblical Christianity and orthodoxy has taught on hell. He, he claims that, it, that hell is something that's experienced on earth um, and, uh, and does so while not citing resources and... Uh, and using what some would consider to be logical fallacies. Enough about that. (laughs) I'm not here to talk about that. Our Western idea of having a very happy ending to everything uh, also interferes with our view of hell. Hell is very very unpleasant to talk about, and we try to tame expressions of God's holiness and wrath that give us discomfort. We also have growing expressions about hell. Hell has gone from a theological belief to an expression. Hell on wheels, hell in a helmet. There will be hell to pay. Work like hell, bad out of hell. We domesticate the wrath of God when we do this. And I, one thing I want to demonstrate today 
and I hope it goes beyond our belief of, of hell and heaven. I, I hope it goes on to our beliefs of, of sexuality, of family, career, purpose. And, 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 and this is the principle. We need, whether it's hell or any of those other things, we need to view our world and our culture through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. And on issues that are much more sensitive, it's very tempting to say, well, I have this cultural understanding. We've arrived here. Now we're in the year 2020. We've arrived at a fairly enlightened point. And so let me interpret Scripture and theology from the last 2,000 years through the eyes of 2020. And instead, what we need to realize is all all flesh is like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And so I need to approach the Word of God with that level of humility and let the Word of God tell me what I'm seeing now. And as we do that, we find that the Word of God is indeed living and active and surprisingly relevant. Jesus believed in hell. He spoke about it more than anyone else. Uh, in an article written for the Gospel Coalition, Leslie Schmucker writes this. She says, Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. He says it's a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abandoned. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There is no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. And having that aspect of Jesus' teaching in mind, John 3.17, the Son of Man did not come to condemn but to save gives us a little more credence that Jesus wanted us to know there is a hell. And Jesus in Matthew 25, and this is going to give the setting for where we're going. Jesus in Matthew 25, he talks about the final judgment. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. World. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger? 
stranger or naked, sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you, and he will say to them, truly I say to you, when you did not do it to one of the least least, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here in this scene, we get the increasing clarity through Scripture that Jesus judges them on the fruit of their faith, kind of a James 2-esque you, you can't have faith without work. So he goes on the, on the revealed reality of their faith, of their genuine faith. In, in Revelation 21, more clarity to this scene. It's those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And he, he, he points out those who are united with Christ, those who aren't. And those who are, he welcomes into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And those who are not are sent into eternal punishment. And so that's the setting. That's where we're going. What, what is heaven? What is hell? And so this morning, the first question we're looking at is what is hell? And we're going to look at, through Scripture, three things that hell is. And the first thing it is, is it's separation from God. Depart from me. I'm casting you away. They will be thrown into. They will be put apart from God. And this is what we see in Genesis 3. And Genesis 3, it starts, and then it only repeats. And as it repeats through Scripture, it escalates. And it, it starts with an eviction from a garden, and it escalates to an eviction from the kingdom of God. But in, in, in the garden, what we see here, and, and we, we see two key things here that sin separates us from God. And the first, as we see in Genesis 3, is a relational separation. Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit. They immediately cover their nakedness. There's a relational separation from each other. And then they hear God walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hide. They hide themselves from God. I have sinned. He is a holy God. I have to hide myself. And there's this immediate relational separation that the rest of the Bible up to about Revelation 2021 20, is about overcoming that relational separation that occurred. So sin puts between us and God a relational separation and then it puts between us and God a God-imposed separation. He sends them out of the garden, and he has, a, he has an angel with a flaming sword guard the entrance to the garden so they cannot re-enter. And that imposed separation between God and man is seen throughout the, the Old Testament. There's the Holy of Holies that only one priest can enter. There's the Ark of the Covenant that only the priest can lay a hand on. There's the sacrifices that only a priest can do. You can't offer sacrifices for your own sin. Those sacrifices have to be offered for you. And over and over we see this. If you're going to walk with a holy God, you need to walk in a holy way. And our sin imposes a relational barrier between us and God. Because our sin cannot be around God. And we see that on earth. And it's going to be an eternity. This escalation goes to the point where P- 
people are cast into and thrown into this lake of fire, this eternal punishment, and the separation in its eternal state is not just a separation from the person of God, but a separation from all His goodness and all His attributes. See, right now, everyone on our earth lives within the common grace of God's presence because God is present in this earth. Even the atheist benefits from the common grace of God whether they realize it or not. And that common grace of God holds back evil. As much evil as we experience, we must realize that God's grace is holding back evil. It is putting a restraint on evil. It allows for goodness. It allows for joy for all people. Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and there's greater joy through walking with God, but joy is available to all people. Love and kindness is available to all people. They are heightened and more concentrated through knowing God and walking with Him and letting His Holy Spirit work in us. But when we think about what hell is, we need to realize the biggest part of it is a separation from God and all His attributes and all His benefits. And we think of what would be if God put no restraints. And the separation of sin that sin creates is perhaps no more vividly seen than Jesus on the cross when all of our sin is poured on Him and the Father turns His back and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And we can see at least in part, what the Trinity went through on account of our sin. So hell is separation from God, and it's also judgment. And there are, there are a lot of people who like to say and like to trumpet as though this is a safe thing that only God can judge me. And that's, that's the, the terrifying fact of this, is not only can He judge you, but He will judge you. And our judgment will not be, were you better than Hitler? Our judgment will be, were you holy as the Lord your God is holy? Were you perfect as the Lord your God is perfect? And it's a test that none of us passes. All sin has consequence, physical and spiritual. If you lie to someone, there's a physical consequence of broken trust within that relationship. But all sin is ultimately against God. One of the clearest examples I see in Scripture of this is in Genesis 39. Joseph is serving in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. She likes the look of him. He's a handsome guy. And she says, hey, why don't we go off in the other room? And, and Joseph says, no, I can't do that. And she kept, she kept trying to proposition him. And finally she cornered him. He goes, look. Potiphar has given me charge over everything in the house but you. He's elevated my position. He's given me all of this, but he he hasn't given me you. He's given me everything else. How then could I sin against God? Potiphar's done all this for me. How could I sin against God? We think of David's confession in Psalm 51. Lord against, you know, he's, he's done all this with, with Bathsheba. He's killed her husband. And he says, God, I've sinned against you. Our sin is against God. And that's a big deal because our sin is a big deal. And we need to be careful not to have a small view of our sin. 
You were created in God's likeness for walking with God, and your sin removes you from that relationship. Your sin separates you from God. And we, tr- we try off so hard to minimize it. Well, I did this, but I didn't do that. And James 2 says very clearly, if, you, if you're guilty, if you keep the whole law but one part and you just break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking all of it. You cannot, we cannot outrighteous our own sin. We're, un, we're, we're, we're not capable of expunging our record against God that our sin, and, and, and we're not capable of getting out of what our sin deserves. Our sin begs for punishment. Psalm 7 says God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. We reap what we sow. Galatians, it says, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And once we've seen the weight of our sin, and we realize the quantity of our sin, and think of that especially against Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve ate fruit. They disobeyed God by eating fruit. They got kicked out of the garden. I've done a lot worse things than eating fruit. And I've done them a lot. And when you think of that in your own life, the weight of judgment becomes heavy. And God has to deal with sin. He cannot ignore it. So the question of salvation and deliverance becomes this. Whose blood is going to pay for your sin? Are you going to pay for your sin? Are you willing to pay for your sin with your own blood? Or are you willing to allow Jesus' blood to be what pays for your sin? So it's separation from God, it's eternal torment, and then our, our least favorite, or it's judgment, and our least favorite part is it is eternal torment. There's a communication method used in Scripture that just where several stories will be told together about the same topic, but each story just grows and builds and escalates. This, this language of escalation, it's a, it's a method used through the book of Revelation. You have 777. Each time it gets worse. You have Jesus uses this, and he uses it about hell. Matthew 24, 51, talking about the master coming back, the servant was, was wicked, he, he wasn't ready, it says he, uh, he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then you go to 25.12 with the next story, the, the, the ten virgins. But he answered them, truly I do not know you. Watch therefore, you neither know the day or the hour. So it goes from weeping and gnashing of teeth, not knowing God. Go to 25.30 and they will be cast and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have weeping and gnashing of teeth twice in the outer darkness, not knowing Jesus, 
and then down to 45 and 46 of 25, then he will answer them saying, truly I do not know you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me, and those will go away into eternal punishment. The rich man was in torment in Luke 16 from the flames and the heat. And then we have in Revelation 14. In Revelation, we see all of humanity continually divided up into two groups, those who follow the beast and those who follow the lamb. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, verse 10, poured out in the full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, presence of the Lamb, and the smoke. This is talking about those who have followed the beast, who have taken his mark. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I remember, I don't, there's so much regrettable that happened in the 90s. Um, and for some reason, there was this fascination of people trying to come up with creative images about pain and say, well, that's what hell will be like. Trying to imagine it. And that's not real helpful, but in Scripture we can look, and, and I don't think we need to go much further in Scripture for creative analogies. Because we have not been known by Jesus. We have an unrelenting suffering. An isolation of outer darkness. And it's sobering. And this is why the doctrine of hell is such a struggle for us to comprehend. As we look at the severity of hell, we need to remember what we're about to get to that God is just. God isn't just, He doesn't have anger issues. This is what our sin deserves. God is, is just, and we need to heed the warning and severity of our sin. There's a reason Jesus talked about this to the level He did. So those are three images from Scripture of what hell is. Now I want to ask the question, why does hell matter? Why can't we get rid of it? Why can't we just like get a Sharpie and take that out of the Bible? Why, why can't we just beg of God, say, God, please don't do this. God will say, you know what, you're right, and then he will. Well, one is biblical truth is not negated by human denial. Secondly, I believe the existence and severity of hell does teach us about God himself. And the first thing it teaches us is, the first thing hell teaches is that it reveals God's holiness. God has this unapproachable holiness, and we've, I feel like we've lost sight of that. That we've, we've, we've made God our buddy somehow. We've, we've, we've tamed him down to something he's not, and he is holy. He is the same God today as he was in the Old Testament. He does not change. Our access to Him is made greater because Jesus died on the cross. The veil was torn. 
God sends His Spirit to live in us, but He is still just as holy as He was in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees God, God, the train of God's robe fills the temple, and there's angels flying around, angels that are perfect beings, and they're having to cover their face because they can't look directly on God. Even the angels can't look directly on God. And we have these praise songs that declare, oh God, I want to see your face. And then you just want to put in parentheses, so I can die. Because that's what would happen. Because the angels cannot look on him. And the whole time, they're crying, they're, they're going around, they're flying around, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, 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 and they're calling this back and forth. And you know, this is the only time in Scripture, in all of Scripture, this is the only time that an attribute of God is listed three times in succession. You will not find love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. You will not find grace, grace, grace is the Lord God Almighty. He is those things. God is love. God is full of grace and mercy. God is also a consuming fire. God is also vengeful. He will get His revenge. But He is holy, holy, holy. And the prophet, I mean, we think about this, like, like yeah, if, if I saw God, like, I'd be in a lot of trouble, because, I mean, I'm me, like, I'm really screwed up. But Isaiah, Isaiah sees God, and you think, well, this will be a good reunion, like, this will be nice. And Isaiah just looks up, and he's like, I'm going to need a new ephod here. And he, he cries out, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Like all he sees God and all I can think about is like, I got a lot of sin. God is holy. And his holiness exposes our sin. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. And so God sent an angel to deal with Isaiah's sin in that moment and sent Isaiah to deal with the people's sin for the rest of the book. And the separation between sin and God, it's not because like God is petulant and just can't get over it. God's not petty. He's not like some hoity-toity God that's like, oh, I can't be bothered by that. It's not that he's unwilling to associate with such people. It's that he wants so much to associate with us and he can't be around our sin, so our sin has to be dealt with. He saved us. But sin cannot exist in God's presence because it is the opposite of him. God's presence in its most intense form in what we will experience in heaven does not allow for the existence of sin. Just like light does not allow for darkness, and the only way for darkness to exist in light is for something to obscure the light. So you look around you, and in this room we have shadows because something's obscuring the light. And in, in heaven, our sin is, there's no sin allowed to be there because nothing can obscure the light and the holiness of God and block it out. And God will put an end one day to everything that obstructs his light. 
And there's a part of us that rejoices at the thought of that, that there will be no longer anything to stand between us and God. And, and the, the most personal, intimate worship experience you've ever had here on earth will pale in comparison to that day. The closest you've ever felt to God here on earth will feel miles apart from that day. And there's a, there's a tragedy to it that being all sin separated means there will be people separated from God for all eternity. And I don't think it's coincidence that right after the judgment when all who don't know Christ are thrown into hell, the new city comes down. God says, I will be their God, they will be my people. And the first thing he does is wipe away their tears. I don't think that's a coincidence. That one of the first things that will happen in heaven is God will dry our tears for us as our heavenly father. So God is holy, he's revealed as holy, and hell declares that God is just. His judgments are true, and the act of judgment shows him as loving. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How is God being a judging God a loving thing? There's a theologian at Yale named Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian, came to the U.S., got ridiculously educated, and now teaches theology at Yale. And he says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. Wolf goes on to say that the only way for us to have human inaction is the belief that any violence, for violence to be good, it has to be divine violence. And after that, he says, the, the idea that we have sometimes here in the West that, that God should not have any violence to him at all, he said that that idea is born in the suburbs and on a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will die. There's a lot of evil, and if God does not deal with that evil, he's not a God worthy of our worship. He is just. God will get the final word. God will execute his justice. We have a significantly lower vantage point of reality in a limited knowledge of justice than God our Father does. I've learned to become more comfortable with the fact that God knows more than me about justice. He created justice. 
He is holy in all his attributes, in his love, in his wrath, in his grace, in his mercy, and his justice. God can judge because he alone is just. Final thing we learn here is that there's a magnification of God's grace. That's why hell matters. I remember being a kid and having a a pretty consistent protest within my life that life isn't fair. That's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. And the first part of Romans 6.23 jumps out. Well, I'll give you fair. The wages of sin is death. You want fair, here's your paycheck. Your paycheck is death. This is what we deserve. We don't even deserve the common grace that we have. That there's this common grace of God experienced by all people where we can experience love and joy and kindness and have some sense of of safety. We don't even deserve that. Even the common grace of God is an unbelievable kindness. And then we look at the saving grace. That God would save us. What is it that Paul said? I give you a saying that's, that's true and wretched man am I deserving of hell. I'm the worst of sinners. We deserve hell. Every single one of us. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't deserve hell, you, you do. And that's probably further proof that you do. Because you're prideful. We deserve hell. If God were only just, that's all we would get. But in His holiness, He is also loving and gracious. And so He offers to us saving grace. So that not only is there a wage for sin, but there is a gift of God of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Several years ago, there was a self-made video by Penn Jillette, the magician of Penn and Teller. He's the big one that talks. Um, he's, he's an outspoken atheist. You could, he would call himself a devout atheist. And he, he made a video just chronicling a story, kind of a, kind of a vlog. And he, he said after a show, a fan came, complimented him on the show, and just asked for a few moments of his time handed him a Bible, and told him the gospel. And he said, no, I, I didn't believe. I, I, you know, he didn't convert in that moment. But he said, I appreciated it so much. And he goes on to say in this video, he goes, I, I have so much respect for Christians who proselytize. He goes, because how could you not? If you believe that, that there's a God who's going to send people to hell and you don't evangelize, he said, how much do you have to hate people to do that? This is the words of an atheist. I, I fear so much that we have just kind of let hell fade into the background to the point where we don't talk about it and we don't tell people that there is a God who loves them and their sin is a real issue. People don't need to get saved so they can come to church and become a member. 
People don't need to get saved so they can sing a song and feel a feeling. People need to come to Jesus because if they don't, they'll go to hell. And Jesus came to save. And so we need to talk. We need to talk to people. We need to let them know that their sin is a problem. And we need to let them know that Jesus offers the solution. And we need to pray. We need to pray like heaven that their eyes will be open and that they'll profess Jesus as their Lord. Let's pray. God, we so many times, Lord, we try to ignore this because it's inconvenient to us. But God, we need to see the whole counsel of God. We need to see you in all your attributes. And Lord, we need your help to walk with you. God, I thank you that you have saved us, that you would save us and make us your own, that you would call us your children so that we no longer have to live with a a fear of punishment, but we can live in the confidence of those who have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Lord, move in our hearts and continue to shape us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.